0: This is the Gospel of Musical Theatre, a priestly look at some of your favorite musicals, with your hosts, Cathedral Deans and Musical Theatre Queens, Nathan LaRude and Peter Elliott.
1: Hello there, Musical Theatre friends. Nathan and I are taking a little break before we hit the ground running with Season 2 will be released next month. In the meantime, we hope you'll enjoy this bonus episode a conversation with well-known British actor and musical theater enthusiast, our friend Robin Kermode. Robin has a fabulous podcast called The Art of Communication, and he was kind enough to invite me to have a conversation with him a couple of weeks ago, and we did. It's, it's up and online, and probably in our notes we can put a, a, a link to, to that podcast. But I got to know Robin through family connections. And uh, he's from London in England. He's a best-selling author, a very popular keynote speaker, podcaster, and respected media commentator. He's the leading body language expert for The Guardian, The Telegraph, and The Daily Mail. And as one of Europe's leading communication coaches, he works globally with senior leaders, politicians, and corporate teams. But the reason he's with us today is he originally trained as an actor and is a very well-known personality to audiences on British television, in films, including the film about uh, former Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher called The Iron Lady, where he plays John Major. And he's been uh, on the London stage as well in the West End. And most importantly, and the reason he's here today is in our podcast conversation, or actually before it, he told me that he's a lover of musical theatre. So welcome, Robin. Good to have you here today. Peter, thank you so much.
0: And Nathan, hello. 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 It's great to meet you, Robin. And you.
1: So let's get right into
2: it. Uh, Have you been a fan of musical theatre for many years? Do you know, Peter, uh, the very first show I ever saw was in 1963, which gives my age away. I was five years old, and my grandparents took my older brother and me to see The Sound of Music. Now, in 1963, The Sound of Music film hadn't come out. At this point, it was just the stage show. And so it was a big hit, of course, and we were five. I wasn't aware it was a big hit. I was just taken to the theatre. But we had the kind of seats that grandparents who have a little bit of money can take you to. So we were sitting in the 10th row, bang in the center at the Palace Theater where Les Mis was on for years, uh, years later of course in London. And we're sitting there and the sound of music starts and I thought, I want to become an actor. Ah, I saw wow. these kids on stage and I thought, that's what I wanna be. And there was a wonderful lady called Jean Baylis who was playing Maria von Trapp. Uh, I didn't know her of course at the time, but, but 50 years later, and it was exactly 50 years later in 2013, I took my parents to a golden wedding anniversary up in Birmingham. And during this reception for this party, and obviously a lot of you know, older people there at the party, being a golden wedding, this lady stood up and started to sing. And she had a slightly sort of operatic voice. And I thought, oh, how lovely. One of their friends used to be an opera singer <laughs> or something like that. And someone said to me, do you know who that is? And I said, no. They said, well, you won't have heard of her, but she's called Jean Bayliss. And I said, not Jean Bayliss. Who was in the sound of music and they said yes i said oh my goodness me i have to go and see her and i walked across the room and i sat with her and talked for half an hour it was one of the most moving moments of my life oh. she was so thrilled that somebody remembered you know 50 yeah. years later and i said to her you are the reason i have this career and you are the reason i became an actor and she was fabulous in the role and i have the original recording of that london recording of it on uh, lp on vinyl and um, I still have it to this day and it was so lovely to meet to meet somebody who was so inspirational for you at the age of five. You know, yeah. it doesn't often happen.
0: Well, and what, what a lovely thing for her to get to connect with somebody who, who she who she touched all those years ago and of, who knew who course, she was and remembered her. You probably made her <laughs> life. Well, I'm not sure about
2: that, but it it was great. And I think it's always always nice for for people. It's a bit like, you know, if you're an actor and people come up to you and say, you know, oh, you know, I saw you in this and you say, oh, lovely. And that's always nice. The very first time it ever happened to me, I was doing a comedy series actually on television and I was buying my food at the supermarket. And the the lady at the checkout, the young lady at the checkout said, uh, she said, oh, you're in that show, aren't you? And of course, the very first time you ever get recognized, you think this is rather fun. So I said, uh, well, yes, it was me, actually. And she looked at me and she said, oh, Right. And I said, "What do you mean? Oh, right." And she said, "No, it's just that on television you look you look really sexy, and in person you're nothing <laughs> nothing. I mean, I can't tell you. So people come up to you and say the most extraordinary things, don't you? Know? <laughs> well, you get that as clergy
1: as well from time
2: to time. I'm sure, I'm sure it does. <laughs> yes, I did. I, yes, I really didn't enjoy your sermon today, or that sort of stuff. I'm sure people have said <laughs> sure. that. The people can be br- brutally honest when you don't want them to be."
0: What an auspicious way to to begin a love affair with musical theater. I mean, what better show to to fall in love with musicals with than Well, it was and then of the course, of you know, I
2: I always thought, you know, uh, maybe one day I'd be in it. And then when yeah. I left drama college, I went to the Royal Central School of Speech and Drama in London. Uh-huh. And uh, when I left there, my agent had this fantastic agent who used to be agent also for people like James Mason and whatever, she was fabulous. And uh, and she said, right, "I think you should go up for this job." And it was to play Rolf in The Sound of Music in 1981 uh-huh. in a production with Patula Clark where she played uh, Maria right and and, and I go along and and I, I do you, you see that production no but your, I re- I re- two, yeah.
0: I've, I've read about it and my understanding mm. is that the actual Maria von Trapp the actual historical figure said that Petula Clark was her favorite Maria of all time she thought Petula Clark got her got her better than any other actress she'd seen in the role
2: that's really interesting I, I mean I remember her think, thinking she was great in it uh-huh. and she also think about Petula Clark is she didn't look like an actress yeah. a lot of the other people who have played it look look rather glamorous in a way and rather beautiful you know and Petula Clark kind of looks I don't know like you might see her on the street she looks like mm-hmm. a normal person and, and maybe Maria Von Trapp had more more fire and less less um look less less like an actress maybe yeah uh, but so I, I'm auditioning for Rolf and um and these are I am 16 going on 17 so of course you have to go along and sing this song right so you hand hand the music in and the first time that, that you you hand the music across and the pianist goes you wait little girl on the empty stage right that was the first first line and so i did this and i got two recalls and finally i got towards the final recall and and of course i was only in 1981 i would have been 23 or 4 or something so i go along there and the director is sitting at the Apollo Victoria, which is where the theater was, in the third balcony, right at the top. So this tiny little voice at the top, the, the worst seat in the house, which is probably a good place to judge people from. Mm-hmm. And he just said, uh, when you're ready. And I, I came on and said, well, I'm just going to say hello. He said, no, when you're ready. I thought, well, this is going to be a short audition. And it was even shorter than I thought because the music went, did, 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 And I went, you, he went, thank you. Wow. I said, I said I, and I started laughing. I said, I'm sorry. I said, I've said the word you. I've sung the word you. And he said, Yes, thank you very much. And I said, Well, I can only hope this production is as enjoyable as this interview has been. And I
0: walked off the street. And so that
3: was think, that.
2: Well, that was it. And I think obviously, I mean, I don't look, you know, I don't look like Rolf. I don't look German. I I'm not blonde haired, blue-eyed, you know. And and also, uh, in that particular production, of course, they made a big thing of the dance sequence. So what sure. they ended up with, they they got a dancer who could act, rather than an mm-hmm. actor who could dance. Mm-hmm. 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 And
0: that and that production, though, I think all about the gazebo. Yeah, it, it still, is. It is. Yeah, that's right. Still, I think that production still, or at least up until a certain point, held the record for the longest running musical production on the West End for, or or maybe the most. I don't remember. It was a something like a record breaking production in some capacity or another. I mean, it, it could, played and played well. and played. Yeah.
2: Yeah, it could, could could well be, and then then of course my affair with uh, Roger and Hammerstein carried on because then uh, I was asked to play the ambassador in the King and I at the uh-huh. Playden with Elaine Page, uh, who uh, was fantastic, and mm-hmm. so we had a great year there. We we the show ran for a year and a half. I just did the first year, but it was it was a, it's a wonderful show. The King and I is just fabulous, yeah, fabulous show. The and, music, and, the music in all Roger and Hammerstein is wonderful.
0: And you got to sit through the whole ballet, the Small House of Uncle Thomas, every single night. That must have been. Such an interesting experience <laughs>
2: do You night. know, the, 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 the director said to me, he said, now, unfortunately, Robin, he said, you are going to have to do this every night. <laughs> but what I did was I decided to turn it into something rather fun. So we, we were at the London Palladium, which I think is probably the nicest Frank Matcham-designed theatre in London. It's absolutely beautiful. And it's 2,500 seats, or it's, it's 2,400, I think. And you can walk out onto the centre of the stage and you can literally feel you can touch everybody. Because it goes straight up in front of you with three balconies, and it's kind of incredibly intimate, which is why it's very good for comedy. Just gorgeous. And just on on that point, there's a thing that actors do when they tour is that because the acoustic, you you t- imagine you turn up each week or each month, whatever, at a new venue, the acoustic for actors in in a play will will vary. So you have to judge how much volume you need in a particular venue. And what the older actors used to do, and I used I picked this up just because it annoyed the younger actors and it made me laugh is you walk to the front of the stage and what the younger actors would do is they'd stand there and they'd say, um, they'd send a friend out to the back and they'd go, uh, can you hear me? One, two, how loud do I have to be? One, two, hello, hello. They'd sort of do this and the, the friend at the back would go too loud, too too quiet or whatever. And I do what the older actors used to do, which is you walk to the front of the stage, you stand there, you don't say anything, you click your fingers and you go. And from that, you know how much bounce back there is. Oh, and then you walk off stage again. So all the other actors are doing this talking and I used to walk to the front and just go, and you'd know. I understand. A walk off, and they go, "What on earth are you doing?" Huh. <laughs> I just did it because it wired them up. But actually, you can tell a lot from the bounce back of the sound. Sure. Um, yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. Huh.
1: I do the same thing in church buildings, just with a. Oh yeah. To see what the bounce is. Um, yeah. And what the reverb is like. You don't have to say anything. You can just tell with a clap of the hands, but snap of the fingers
2: means that's an extraordinary acoustic, eh? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And at the Palladium, you could hear it back. You literally could hear it back. It was, wow. it was, just, it was just fabulous. But mm-hmm. I remember one of the most magical things, and I'd never done a big musical before, but we rehearse, You imagine that you rehearse in a rehearsal room just with a piano, and then you turn up to the theater and of course the palladium's amazing. So you turn up there and you think, oh my goodness, me, and all the all the billing is outside and the posters and everything. And and the set that cost three million pounds was was there, and it looks amazing with these giant elephants and everything. But the first rehearsal is not on stage. The first rehearsal was in the bar. And they have all the the orchestra, the full orchestra, so sort of orchestra of um, 45 people or whatever it was, and the actors with a the microphone there, and you hear it with an orchestra for the first time. Mm-hmm. And when you hear those songs, Something wonderful, um, you know. Well, hello, young, shall, lovers. Shall, shall, shall we hello dance? young lovers. Shall we dance? These are these are beautiful yeah. tunes, really beautiful tunes. And when you yeah. hear them with that orchestra, oh my goodness, it just sent a shiver down my spine. And I thought, you know, that that young boy of age age five who dreamt of being in a Rodgers and Hammerstein musical, and here yeah. I was. I wasn't singing, of course, um, but I was able to do it. But thinking back to the the Uncle Tom thing, what I used to do in the Palladium, we had we were sitting in one of the balconies, which is actually the Royal Box on the other side was another box. So what they did in this production was they put the dancers on stage, the singers who were narrating the ballad. Little bit. House the, of Uncle the, Thomas. The, the, little House that. of Uncle Thomas, exactly. So they were on the other side and we were on this side. So I decided, because they were basically doing it for the benefit of my character, the, the British ambassador. I decided to thank them every time they gave me some piece of information. So it kind of built up my part a bit. So uh-huh. they would say, you know, and uh, you know, Uncle Tom comes to the river. And I would stand up and say, he comes to the river? Totally understand. Thank you so much. And, I'd sit and, go, right? <laughs> and this kind of went on the whole thing. And it became, it became quite a thing. And the orchestra loved it. And I got a letter. The nicest thing is I got a letter from the conductor, the musical director, at the end of the year. And he said, thank you so much for single-handedly entertaining my orchestra for the whole year. <laughs> because I did something different every night. It was great uh-huh. fun. Great fun.
0: Well, you you need you need little tricks like that, don't you? When you're in a the, in the long-running production of something, especially when you're we're sitting watching something. I mean, something to kind of keep it alive, keep it in the moment. Yeah. And if you're the orchestra, I mean, you're playing this stuff every single night. Like, you've got to you, find something.
2: You do. You, you've got to find something. You zone and course, out. And there are some things that actors do. There are some games that actors play. Uh, they play the vegetable game. I don't know if you've ever come across this one, which is where you have to try and get the name of a vegetable in or as many vegetables as you can without uh-huh. the audience noticing. And the more audacious, the better. <laughs> <laughs> so and that you can come off saying, "Well, I got 17 this," and you have to tell them where they all were, you know. Right, right. Uh, and and that's quite fun. So you could, you can play games that just just to uh, to keep yourself fresh. But of course, the best thing is to say, "Do you know what? Tonight, I'm going to do the show, and I'm just going to be really really clear in my diction, or I'm going to be really I'm going to really listen to other actors tonight, mm-hmm. or I'm going to try and find as much humor as possible, sure. or I'm going to really try and find the emotion tonight." So you give yourself a little focus. It doesn't really change. Mm-hmm. The overall performance, but it stops you just phoning it in because sure. you can't. People have paid a lot of money for their tickets. You can't ever right. phone it in. You can't right. ever think, oh, the, you know, it's, oh, it's this show again. You right. kind of have to go, go on, okay, here highlight. we go. Yeah. But mind you, when you're in your dressing room and the orchestra starts up for the, those uh, for the overtures, hmm. you can't phone it in. You yeah. just can't phone it. Not with Rodgers and Hammerstein, and certainly not. I've never done uh, Lerner and Lowe, but you know, my goodness me, the tunes in My Fair Lady. You Can't phone that in, can you? Yeah, no, the, the music yeah, really kind of speaking of the overture.
1: You. The Bartlett Schur, who's a director from Seattle, who's done Rogers and Hammerstein, revisioned a fabulous production of The King and I. But sort of what, what he's famous for was his production of South Pacific, which uh, one of Nathan and my colleagues and I saw in New York. A few years ago. And what he did differently was so many of the shows, at least in Broadway now, uh, have a couple synthesizers, maybe a trumpeter, percussionist, yeah. but he brought back the full orchestra for South Pacific, and when Bill, uh, Nathan and my friend and I were sitting at the Lincoln Center Theater and the overture for South Pacific began. I mean, the feeling is just overwhelming. The the score is so lush and melodic and beautiful. So imagine hearing the overture for The
2: King and I every night for a year. Well, I remember when we had the, the final dress rehearsal and because I was in the second half, I thought, well, I'm going to go and watch the very beginning from the front. And I brought my brother along. My, my younger brother is a musical director, so he's a head of a school, a musical mm-hmm. director. And he loves putting on shows. And so he loves Roger and Hammerstein, of course. And he came, so I was sitting with him at the front of the dress circle of the Palladium to watch the opening. The curtain went up and they hit the first note. And, and he just went oh wow (laughs) and it literally it was just and i could sort of see it through his eyes for the first time and he's went, oh that sound you know the sound of a a full orchestra is just magnificent just wonderful yeah
0: I think, I think we tend to kind of downplay the importance of overtures to, because I mean, they, 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 I think, sometimes feel like a sort of echo of, a, of, a, of an earlier age, right? That, you know, I suppose there are some shows that still do overtures, um, but not, you know, they, 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 I, I think we sort of think of them as something that Rodgers and Hammerstein and Lerner and Lowe do, and then, you know, that's kind of passe now. We want the show to begin right away with something visual to grab you. Mm, yeah. But there's something so important about establishing the soundscape almost course, before you course. see anything. Yeah. Which, yeah. which, which Roger and Hamilton really understand.
2: Yeah, of course. And it pulls your focus in because everybody's coming from, from disparate lives. You know, yeah. they, they, some, some are trying to have trouble parking their car. Some have got wet and some have come from a difficult meeting at work and some have had, you know, stuff to deal with at home. And, and they all finally come there and the orchestra kind of just, you go, Oh, here we all are. Yeah. And by the time it finishes, we're all, you know, as, as Peter said on my podcast, we're all breathing as one and we're all yeah. kind of we're there for the shows. Yeah. great.
0: It establishes the world and kind of puts it all all, all of us together in that in that yeah. space. Yeah. yeah.
1: So important. So, and cleverly introduces the big tunes, too.
0: Well, and that's course, it, right. Yeah. So important. Right. In, in, a, in a world in which these tunes, you know, everybody knows they're going to become the standards of their day. Mm-hmm. Right. So you, you plant the you plant the earworm as early as possible. So by the time the tune comes along and people are singing, the audience is like, oh, yes, I've, <laughs> this is familiar.
2: Right. Like Of I course. Can, of course. Yeah, and of course, when it. I when I first saw The Sound of Music in, in uh, 1963, before the film, of course, I didn't know the tunes. None of us knew the tunes. Right. So the orchestra, the, the overture was helpful in a way. It, it did. It did yeah. sow those seeds. It wasn't like now where you think, oh, it's that tune again. Oh, it's that tune. Oh, good. I'm glad. Oh, of course, it's got that. So I forgot that one. Yeah. You know, so it's it's very different. I think seeing seeing a show before it's famous. Yeah. You know, and therefore the, the overture did have a, an important part to play. Yeah. It's almost an educational role that it Yeah. That yeah. Plays. yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: I'm curious, Robin, especially kind of given your, your deep experience with Rodgers and Hammerstein in the UK. I mean, one of the things that Peter and I have talked about is, uh, I, you know, I, as an American, I, I tend to come to that material as sort of quintessential, Ameri- sort of defining American values, American culture at the mid-century. Um, and yet Rodgers and Hammerstein have in some ways like have been just as popular, if not more popular in the United Kingdom. Um, oh, massive! As, so, as, yeah. I mean, especially as the Sound of Music is like a phenomenon in the UK. Mm-hmm. Like it's a, it's it a, is. it's a cult classic in the way that I don't think we really understand in America, right? People know the Sound of Music; it's beloved, but not with the same sort of sort of marker of culture, my sense is, mm-hmm. in, in the way that it is for the UK. Do you have a sense of of what it is about the music, these shows, this material that fi- that, that strikes such a chord with British audiences?
2: Well, I, I mean, I think that the the three big musicals in Britain that sort of define. Englishness, I suppose, in a way, is Oliver, which is, you know, the the, um, Oliver Twist story, Uh, My Fair Lady, and Sound of Music. They're the the quintessentially English stories put to music that have become world famous. And I think that's why they'll always be revived in the UK, because there's something quintessentially English about them. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, which is curious because two of those are, by, at least, I, I think Lionel Bard is, is a, was an English composer, but Roger Hammerstein, English, yes. of course, and, and Lerner and Lower, you know, like Alan J. Lerner, I guess, lived and studied in England for a little bit, but it's curious that two American shows are so important in defining Englishness, right? That it's, that, that's it's a right, sort that's of reflection right. from across the pond that somehow yeah. somehow works, yeah.
2: But but also they're, they're, they're done very affectionately uh, as well, you know. Yeah. Um, and I suppose the, the other one that uh, has now come on, across is Mary Poppins, which of course, originally was was not a okay. musical right. as as such, but but uh, now now it's back on stage and and sort of is is considered a musical, and that's of course doing doing very well as well. Yeah
0: sort of filtered through a slightly Americanized lens, you know, taking British yeah. material, filtering it through a Disney lens and then refiltering it back through a much more British lens
2: when it's yes. staged.
0: Yeah, a really yes. interesting kind of amalgam. And then I
2: think the extraordinary thing is is the link between the two shows, between The Sound of Music and uh, My Fair Lady, sure. is Marnie Nixon, of course. Right. Uh, and Marnie Nixon, who you know, who, who ghost voiced both of them in, oh. in both in both productions. And, and, uh, and she's, of course, American, very American. And yet, yeah. uh, in terms of her accent, but then you, you hear her singing this crystal... Uh voice it's, it's she's a she's an extraordinary singer.
0: I could have danced all night, I could have danced all night, and still have for more. I could have spread my wings and done a th- Oh. Marty Nixon is, is sort of the through line for, certainly, I mean, you know, not just, you know, My Fair Lady, uh, but the, the King and I, she voices Deborah Carr, she voices yeah. Nath- Natalie Wood in West Side Story. I mean, she right. is the voice of mid-century American movie musicals in a amazing, way that, I know, she really is, I mean, and, and manages to customize herself to, I, you know, I suppose in some ways Audrey Hepburn is maybe the least successful, at least for my money. Um, but yes. her, her, her work with Deborah Carr on The King and I is, is astounding. I mean, she oh, really amazing. captures, yeah, the sound of that actress.
2: And then, of course, you have, you know, I I was very upset as a child to discover rather like Discovering about Father Christmas that, that Christopher Plummer didn't sing in the sound of music, I, I yeah. was I was upset for days about that.
0: <laughs> there are we've Peter and I have shown some film clips that they of because the original agreement I think with Christopher Plummer was he you know he he agreed to do it with the understanding that it would be him singing. So he I'm recorded sure he all this, all the, all the music. They you know they they filmed it with his dubbing, and then at the mm. last minute, Bill Lee came in to to overdub him. But there's some lovely clips of him singing Edelweiss with Charmin and Carr, um, and he actually I think he sounds I actually kind of like the he's not a professional singer but it feels much more like the way you imagine captain von Trapp would have actually sounded right he's not a professional singer but he does have a a decent voice and he's a pretty decent guitar player and it feels like a like dad singing in a way that when it's dubbed by billy you just don't get the quite quite the same effect but he's he's actually he does a really lovely job i think it's it's a shame he he does yeah his, his tracks
2: and the the other, the other uh, Lerner and Lowe uh, score, of course, another quintessentially British movie is Camelot. Of course, yeah. the King, you know, the King Arthur yes. story right. with with Richard Burton, and and uh, one of my favourite songs in the UK. There's a show called Desert Island Discs where mm-hmm. you're asked to to take seven records. If you were you know shipwrecked on an island, which seven records would you take? And one of mine would be Richard Burton singing "How to Handle a Woman" from mm. from Camelot. It's mm-hmm. absolutely beautiful, and because he sings it. Not like a singer, but he—but of course he does have that incredible voice, yeah. and um, and he just sings it with such naturalness. Really, it's beautiful. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Speaking of non-singing actors, makes me think of Rex Harrison, which takes me to uh, My Fair Lady, which Nathan and I. Uh, demolished in our last uh, recording. We have wrecked My Fair Lady for numbers of uh, very lovely church people from really across North America now because of uh, slagging Henry Higgins a little bit. But you have a bit of a relationship with My Fair Lady, almost, eh?
2: Well, I suppose in, in, in being a voice coach, in that sense, do you mean? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I mean, I, you know, as as we said, you know, I was an actor for a long time, and I suppose I, I still am. You once an actor, never an actor, never you stop being an actor. But for the last 15 years, I've been coaching people and I work on all sorts of things about how you know how you connect with your audience. And I think the most important thing about anything actually is the voice, because if the voice is authentic, everything else is right. And people often say to me, you know, will you run a, a day on body language coaching and stuff? And I said, Well, I can do that, but actually, if you just get the voice right. The body has to be doing the right thing or you can't produce the voice right in a sense so i said why don't we just do the voice work and then you end up with two things for the price of one and and for me voice is we we were taught as young actors that that, you know we the drama school said we can teach you everything about how to hold an audience every single thing about how to hold an audience apart from two we can't teach you to be funny and we can't teach you to be sexy you either are or you aren't and they said that then they just you know we just can't teach those things and it's interesting that clients have often said to me you know can, can, can i tell a joke and i said well yeah you can start a speech with a joke but you've kind of got to be quite confident that you're going to get it right otherwise it doesn't work so you you've, i think so com- comedy and and uh, uh, sexuality and that sort of that that sense of with something that's something that i suppose you know burton for me Richard Burton um, encompassed both of them really you know he, he was kind of strong sexy man with this amazing voice and you think you know it's kind of what you know certainly as a young man that's you know what I wanted to be that not not the alcoholism and everything else on the side of it but but the but all the good qualities that go with that you know and, and I think uh, voice is unbelievably important and we were taught basically all you have to do is you have to speak from your emotional center and as, as you will know, Peter, course, the emotional center is in the gut, which is, you know, in the, below the belly button and there. And if we can somehow align our breath with our emotional center, then we tend to sound more authentic and, um, and real, you know. And, 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 uh, and the thing is, when you watch really good actors, they don't look like they're acting it. They look like they're just being it, you know, and that's the trick. A lot, right. You know, amateur actors tend to do a lot of, and, and school children, when you watch them, they tend to do a lot of acting, acting, demonstrating acting. But actually, sometimes simple is is best, you know, and simple simple and honest is best. Yeah,
1: yeah. When I was reviewing your, your, uh, your biography, and such an impressive one, just before today, I hadn't realized that you grew up in Lancashire. (laughs) Um, and that's uh, a part of the world my maternal grandparents come from. I still have one of my cousins, he turns 80 this year, is still living in London, uh, big theater, uh, uh, loves the musical theater, particularly loves Sondheim. That's a whole, we should, uh, Nathan, we should have Derek Sibbering on sometime. And he, of course, developed, uh, got rid of, for the most part, his Lancashire accent Mm. uh, when he moved to London and uh, Lancashire, Nathan, North England. I got a recording of my my mother interviewing my grandmother, my grandmother who was born in 1891, Mm. telling of growing up in Blackburn and working in the mills and Mm. and just hearing the lilt of her Lancashire accent. She didn't say E too often, but there were a couple Mm. E's, which is a way to express, express empathy, I think, for another, you know, if so-and-so died, oh, you know. But, and I have never detected a trace of a Lancashire accent in you, my friend, Robin.
2: (laughs) Well, my my mother had a Lancashire accent. My father came from the South. And actually, I, I sound almost identical to my father, I would say now. But when I was growing up there, I mean, I did have more of an accent. But when we went to drama school in those days, Accents were 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 kind of eradicated, mm. so you know I probably now people would probably say you know you're you're you kind of have a sort of BBC old-fashioned type of accent really, but it's just the accent of my father actually, and uh, and accents go in fashions, don't they? Uh, certainly, you know, I do a lot of voiceovers, and you know some there are times in 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 the world where a reassuring. Establishment type voice is helpful mm-hmm. if you're selling a product, and there are times when actually you want to go very regional and very light and very non-voiceover. Yeah. So you know things go in, things go in fashions, and uh, it's interesting to, to rewatch uh, My Fair Lady, which I did at the weekend. And you think, you know, it's, it's almost as if there was a correct way to speak. Well, there isn't a correct way to speak now. Yeah. What there is, though, is you know, there is is somebody being authentic is really what it comes down to, you know? So a lot of my clients will say to me, yeah, but you know, I'm now CEO, but I'm not going to be taken very seriously because I have a Northern accent or a Birmingham accent or a Scottish accent or not Scottish, but certain accents. And I think, you know, that's who you are. And actually, that's real. And in a, in a way, I often had, I often wish I had more of a Lancashire accent now, because I think the way the world <laughs> is, there's a kind of authenticity in that, sure. you know, and, and, uh, and I think sometimes, you know, I I could be dismissed or people with my accent could be dismissed as being slightly old fashioned. I don't feel it particularly, it's just the sound of my voice, you know, right. but in the same way that uh, in the time of Henry Higgins, my voice was what you were aspiring to. It, I don't think it is necessarily now, but now I think every voice is acceptable, and every accent's acceptable, and that's terrific.
3: Why can't the English teach their children how to speak? This verbal class distinction by now should be antique. If you spoke as she does, sir, instead of the way you do, why, you might be selling flowers too. I beg your pardon? An Englishman's way of speaking absolutely classifies him. The moment he talks, he makes some other Englishman despise him. One common language I'm afraid we'll never get. Oh, why can't the English learn to set a good example to people whose English is painful to your ears? The Scotch and the Irish leave you close to tears. There even are places where English completely disappears. But well, in America, they haven't used it for years. <laughs> Why can't the English teach their children how to speak? Norwegians learn Norwegian. The Greeks are taught their Greek. In France, every Frenchman knows his language, may to said. The French don't care what they do, actually, as long as they pronounce it properly.
0: There's something really interesting to me about that. I mean, you know, our our show we we, we like to think about sort of the gospel implications of musicals, which and we define mm-hmm. that you know very very broadly, right? It does not need to be mm-hmm. the, the saving the saving gospel of Jesus Christ, it, but but what you're what you're describing in some ways could be maybe a more contemporary riff on a more kind of gospel oriented approach to something like My Fair Lady, right? What if Henry Higgins' project had been not teaching Eliza how to speak correctly according mm-hmm. to the standard of the time, but as you as you do, Robin, freeing up her authenticity. Finding a way for her to communicate, so maybe not teaching her not to speak Cockney, um, but finding a way for her to claim that authenticity. I mean, it would be a very different show, I think, and would I think yeah. would help some of Peter and Mai's critique of, of the show, because in, in some ways our, our our difficulty with My Fair Lady is the way that, that Higgins treats Eliza as if she is yeah. a little doll to be dressed up. And in some ways, kind of going back to that original myth, right? He's trying to create something in his own image. um, but, But your approach is much more about kind of claiming the authenticity in each individual, which is a very different way of thinking about, I don't know, the project of teaching someone to speak well.
2: It is well, but also the, the, he was trying to, to get her. He was trying to get her to fit into society, yeah. and that society had very strict rules in those days. And he said, if you want to get into society, you have to abide by these rules. Mm-hmm. And one of them is you have to speak correctly, and you have to know what language to use. Um, you know, you say lavatory as opposed to toilet, or, or you right. know, sofa as opposed to settee, or whether certain words that you're supposed to say or not say. And I think you know, if you're coaching somebody now, it's really about being appropriate. Mm-hmm. So. When I'm working with people, I always say, look, you want to have a a, sort of a toolbox, really, in your back pocket. You can say, so in this meeting, it's appropriate if I behave in this way. It's appropriate if I do that. It's still all you, but you just choose what's acceptable to other people because you're you're trying to make other people feel comfortable. And I said to my stepkids, you know, if you go through life making other people feel special, life is actually very easy. Mm -hmm. And if you go through life saying, look at me, they just want you to slip on the banana skin. You know, so I think life isn't as rigid as it was, and society isn't as rigid as it was in, in sure. my fair lady's time, but there are still appropriate ways of behaving, Yeah. you know, and, and I think we well, should just be, like in a library, you don't go and shout in the library, for example, sure. there are certain things right. that sure. we all know, or in a church. And it really is the great faux pas that Eliza Doolittle.
1: It's charming at the, at the is it the the, the post uh, race or at the ball when Eliza's speaking to Henry Higgins' mother, Missus Higgins. You know they say she died of influenza, mm-hmm. but it is my belief they done her in. <laughs> exactly. Um, it, and it's a great story, uh, but it is inappropriate in the con in the social right. context. Right of that moment, whereas at a pub, in cockney london mm-hmm. it would have been exactly what you talk right. about
0: the, exactly. and the the joke there is that she's got the she's got the dialect and she's got the accent down but she hasn't figured out what's appropriate and you know like she hasn't it figured was. out the context of it that you're talking about so it works yeah. as comedy right and almost yeah. like she almost gets away with it because she's speaking mm-hmm. so beautifully that they don't they're all kind of like shaking their heads but it, you know nobody mm-hmm. nobody knows right oh this is so yeah. inappropriate well this is curious yeah. but okay whatever she's speaking appropriately so she must be the real deal yeah. which yeah. kind of underscores I, higgins point
2: yeah, and it's rather like you know with with communism, communism and fascism, where they kind of meet in the middle. You know, the kind of this, for the for everyday people, there's not very much difference in, un, under both regimes really. And it's the same here, I think, in the UK, where uh, you have you know a sort of very upper class person and a very working class person, and they kind of use the same language. Actually, it's the people sure. in the middle who are trying to, to 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 always do the right thing. Yeah. So it's that sort of. <laughs> The middle classes, who are the aspiring middle classes, the ones who always want to get it right. Yeah. If you are Lord Somebody or other, you can do whatever you, you can like. Get away and with nobody anything. cares, you know. Right. And so, exactly. and I think the same. So, you know, if you're a Doolittle or you're an Earl, you can uh-huh. kind of do anything. If you're stuck in the middle, you kind of have to think. Well, I, I better do the right thing. Right. And I think I think that's the that's the tragedy. I think of being middle class.
0: Yeah, always sort of playing to one or the other. In, in America, we talk, I maybe use the same term, code switching is the term that we'll often kind of use for yeah, people yeah. that, you know, often people who are uh, born in one class, but find, you know, f- find a way into another into another place. So they, they know how to speak, you know, as they do at home yeah. with their family. They also know then how to translate and speak in a boardroom into a very different, you know, I think queer people often learn this, right? The way that we speak, you know, among at the gay bar, among our friends versus how we perform in straight society. I think those Mm African-Americans learn a sort of code switching. Um, People who are marginalized often learn that Mm -hmm. skill, right? Like how to, you know, without even ever thinking, thinking about it, can switch on and off in terms of what's appropriate, what kind of code words we use. And we see a lot of that, I think, in My Fair Lady, this this kind of phenomenon of um, of code switching.
2: Yeah. And I I think what's what's great and certainly the, the work that I do with people is to try to help them to have all those different sides but to bring them into one and it's very much a journey I had because you know as as an actor I was always very comfortable standing in front of you know 2,000 people or whatever because that was my job but I wasn't standing there as me I was standing there as a character and as soon as you stand there as you you feel judged Mm -hmm. so in certain in all the various different scenarios that we've been talking about you think I want to fit in in all these situations and then what I had to learn was how you know in a sense who I was and When I started coaching and now I do a lot of keynote speaking and that kind of thing. And I think that what I'm proud of in myself and what I help other people to do and encourage them to do is to kind of have one voice within all that. So, yes, you can nuance it a little bit. But basically, you know, if you if you saw me give a a keynote speech at a conference, I don't sound very different to how I'm talking now. There's almost no difference because I have a microphone, you know, if I'm talking to 2000 people and I have to fill the theater, of course I'm going to use a theater voice, but I don't have to nowadays because I have a little radio mic. So in terms of the tone of voice that, you know, whether I'm talking to a prospective client or on, on your podcast here or giving a speech or talking to my kids, I don't think I change very much, mm-hmm. but that's been a lifetime journey for me sure. to get to that point of being, of kind of knowing who I am. And, and, mm-hmm. and so I can fit in, I think, I would hope anywhere. You know, I could talk to the Queen or I could talk to the dustman. It's kind of all the way through, and no judgment on either of those two two stations in life. But I kind of, in every situation, I think I could fit in, and I don't change my accent. I don't think, oh, now I have to dumb it down or I have to, you know. And I think once you get to that point, then you're free, because you kind of go, do you know what? Mm. I'm me, and I can. It's kind of who I am. Yeah. You know. It's- and then, and then there's a freedom in that. Yeah.
0: That, I mean, to me, that, that sounds like an articulation of the gospel, as I understand it, right? And in some ways, the, the project of the spiritual life, as I, as I sometimes right. talk about it, is that journey to finding true authenticity. I mean, I, I would maybe call that freedom in Christ, right? Somebody else is going to yeah. use a different framework for that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that is the sweet spot that we're always sort of, as, as preachers, certainly Peter and I are always sort of kind of working on how do we, as, as congregations, but as individuals, how do we get better at finding that core? It is, yeah. I think, in some ways, a, a spiritual project. And it's interesting to see it kind of playing out in, you know, in musicals and secular society. That that yeah. desire for authenticity really does feel like, I don't know, it's something that I think a lot of people right now are, are thinking about and working towards. And yeah. um, it's very much kind of of our moment in a certain kind of way.
2: I had a wonderful priest in London who retired after probably 25 years, very similar to, to Peter, actually, in terms of length there. And his last sermon was, was really interesting because he said, he said you know, I've, I've talked a lot about the Gospels and stuff over the last, you know, 25 years. And you would probably expect my last sermon, my last homily to be, um, you know, very spiritual. He said, but actually, I'm just going it, to, it boils down to one thing, really. He said, it's just about being present. And he said, I think the secret of life is being present, which is basically wanting to be where you are and not wanting to be somewhere else or waiting to be somewhere else. And he said, I hope that in all your dealings with me over the last 25 years, that I've always been present there for you. Whenever you've needed help, I've been there actually present in that moment not thinking well i I've, i will i can see you quickly but i've got to dash off somewhere he said and i think you know if we can all learn to be present and and uh, comfortable with who we are at that moment i suppose that's another way of putting the putting it isn't it nathan it's that that's the journey we're all on and and when we get to that journey you know there's, there's only fear in the past or of the past or or, or of the future and and. Uh, uh, in the moment there is no pain there is no fear in the moment mm-hmm. and that's of course the mm-hmm. that's yeah. the secret of life but it's like all simple you know secrets of simple things that are hard to achieve very hard
0: but that that's also sort of the actor's challenge isn't it i mean like in some ways that that that's that's one of the things i think about in terms of really good acting is being fully present to oh. the, you know to the moment you're in right to the other to, to the you know, to whatever whatever it is you're playing right whatever the character mm-hmm. whatever the situation whoever else is on stage with you you know the mm-hmm. best the best moments in theater and on film come when an actor has learned how to be fully present in that way, which is such a spiritual, this, this is why I think acting is some ways the best way of thinking about what it means to live a fully embodied spiritual life. The tools an actor learns translate so beautifully, I think, into what it means to be a, a person of spirit in the world.
2: Yeah. And the, my, Anthony Hopkins is one of my, my favorite actors who I, I, I knew vaguely many, many years ago. And he, he has a wonderful trick in a way to act presence. Mm-hmm. So because in, in a sense, there's, there's an art theatre is an artifice, isn't it, in a way? And yeah. and, um, and if he has a line of dialogue, like, and if he's going to tell it's something like Remains of the Day, I can't remember if this line actually existed in it, but it's the kind of, you know, you don't understand, I love you, mm-hmm. right, or something like that. And it's kind of, it's a big thing for him to say to somebody. What he will do is he, the, the key word in that sentence, of course, is love. So he'll just put an artificial pause in front of that word as if, Because what happens in life is you plan to say that you think, okay, I'm going to see her and I'm going to say to her, the thing is I love you, right? Now in life, of course, when you actually look in somebody's eyes, you think I can't say that or it doesn't feel appropriate. So you might say the thing is, I just you know I just think maybe we should see more of each other and do you fancy going for a walk tomorrow? And you kind of you you veer off because it just it's too much to say. But but if you if you dare to do what he does, which is you put the pause and it sounds a bit like this, where you say, the thing is I don't the thing is I love you right and it's kind of and the 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 pause before it is like you you the decision to say it or not to say it and that help. so there are ways that actors can can um artificially create presence of course Uh you can do it by actually being present but there are ways in long runs that you can help yourself by giving you those triggers
0: yeah it's so interesting isn't it and and
1: i'm thinking in in my fair lady there's kind of just this conversation about presence there's two moments, I think, there's probably more, but I'm just thinking of two right now, where I think Eliza is really in the moment, is of course, uh, through the rain in Spain, is mainly on the plane. And then reflecting on that when she's in bed, it's, I could have danced all night. Like in that moment, it's a dance, not between Eliza and Henry Higgins, it's a three-way dance that they have. and. They're alive in that in that extraordinary moment of mm. being present to each other and being real with each other and all that sort of stuff. And of course, the other moment is at the very end where she comes back to Henry Higgins' house, Eliza comes back to Henry Higgins' house, and he says, Eliza, get me my slippers. And the audience is left wondering what is she going to do in that moment lots of us would like her just to throw the throw the slippers at his head you know and uh, to hell with you henry higgins which she's kind of sung anyway earlier and different productions do it different way but i think one of the things that grips people about my fair lady is that there are these moments where you really have a sense that human beings are really authentically being present uh honestly and fully to each other
2: mm-hmm. and she is and she is she's is in a sense discovering her own joy isn't she at that moment yeah. uh, there's a wonderful uh, quote uh, uh, cameron mackintosh who produced the um 2001 production with jonathan price and I, I should say actually i think one of the biggest regrets of my life is i was after the king and i i was unofficially asked if i'd like to understudy Jonathan Price Uh, as Higgins in the 2001 uh, Drury Lane production London Mm -hmm. and I said no and this is kind of pathetic young, uh, well I wasn't that young but it's kind of an actor who who thinks he's just too grand, and they go, "I don't understudy," which I never have actually understudied. But but to be honest, understudying Jonathan Price in in um, My Fair Lady, I don't think would have been a step down. And I, I I I rather grandly said no, but I probably should have done. Would have been wonderful, even if I even if I did it once. Do you uh-huh. know what I mean? Even if I did that production once. But but Cameron Mackintosh, the producer, had this great quote. He said, "Well, basically, My Fair Lady said it's a Cinderella story." Where the girl has has the balls at the end of the night as well as the slippers, which is kind of, uh-huh. sort of and I think she yeah. no, no she does she actually has the power by the end. Yeah, she knows. You know, so yes, it is it is a, you know, a slightly sort of Svengali manipulative play, which is slightly disturbing nowadays. I think in in and I totally understand where where you're coming from in that. Just right. as you know, The King and I you know, could be regarded as as supremely racist now in terms of the way that we're kind of encouraged to laugh at the inability to speak English correctly, you know. Right. But I think the tunes are so good in in all these shows that they kind of rise above that. But it is interesting trying to stage them now. I think some some of that has to be addressed and and nuances have to be uh, sure. tweaked. Yeah.
0: Well, and so much of that, you can, I think, it, we're, in a, we're in a day in which restaging and rethinking some of this material um, is being done in some, in some really interesting way. I mean, often mm. you're sort of using the material almost against itself, right? I think about the production of, of Oklahoma that won all the awards in New York City, right? Where, you know, they didn't change a line of the script they didn't change mm-hmm. a note of the music reorchestrated some things but yeah. you know restaged it in a completely different way and left the you know kind of the whole cast singing oh what a beautiful morning and with bloods all over them shell shocked mm-hmm. at the violence at the end of the show and then the lights come down and the audience is left like, <laughs> like, show, you know, like what? What have we done? What you know, like there's blood on our hands. You know, you can use yeah. these these materials that were meant in a very sort of jingoistic, everything's going mm-hmm. our way sort of way. The same material, restage, recontextualized, acted with some different choices, uh, can can say something very different. Uh, which totally. I suppose, and in some ways, that's the that's the power of great art, right? It can yeah. be so multivalent.
2: And and the the recent production of Company, sometimes Company yeah, in London, which I think example. went to New York, where where they just switch the main boy to right. a main girl you know and yeah. and nothing else really changed in the show it was fantastic absolutely and i think it was better than the original actually mm-hmm. mm. yeah
1: it was just about to open on the broadway when yeah they were the previews i think hit. that's right yeah. yeah so uh we still we still wait for we it.
0: wait with bated breath yes uh,
1: for yeah. another yeah. experience of presence in theater i love yeah. that i'm going to take that with me for the day the the authenticity of voice and the being present in a moment, both good tricks of the trade of theater and public speaking, but also really deeply resonant with uh, with with an authentic spirituality. So, so mm. thank you for that, Robin. Yeah. And gosh, looking at our time, we should probably wind up. What can I say? It's been a joy absolutely uh, to have this conversation with you. And you know what it's like, both of you. It's always wonderful when friends meet friends and so i'm so delighted robin that you have had an opportunity to meet nathan and nathan that you've had an opportunity to meet robin
2: it's lovely i know it's 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 fabulous and you know it's interesting that in the world we're we're, we're living at the moment with these virtual meetings and things you and obviously you know the way where we're doing this now is is we're recording our own sounds and then we're putting them together just for quality purposes because obviously the sound can drop in and out on on zoom calls and video calls and things but there is You know, people say to me, you know, you know, so I just want to meet people in face to face. But interestingly enough, I think it's not quite the same, but I think that after a conversation like this, we've proved that actually, even though we're not in the same rooms, we can have a conversation as friends. Mm -hmm. We just have to do it authentically. Yeah. And not and I think one of the challenges with the video conference stuff and the Zooms and things is that we look at ourselves on the screen and we kind of look like a TV commercial. And if we're not careful, we look like we're selling or we're trying too hard. And I think we kind of have to forget in a way that we're being filmed and just um you know and just connect as human beings. And and I think it is possible. It's harder, but I think it is possible. And, and certainly when I'm coaching people, I always say, Do you know what? At the end of this, I just think I'd like you to feel it's just the same as if we've had coffee together that's it we're not trying to pretend to be all perfect and looking like a tv commercial as i said we're just we're just it's just a medium for us to connect but i right. i certainly feel you know that i've i've I, the first time i met nathan and and i kind of felt you know i feel that we've we have met each other properly yeah. even though we've only done it virtually so nathan thank you so much for that it's and a Peter, pleasure, thank you Robert. for having me on yes indeed
0: yeah, thank you for thank you for joining us on our little uh, our little journey through the musicals of Roger and Hammerstein and Lerner and Lowe. It's great to... Oh, my great pleasure. And, and thank you for your stories. They're really marvelous. <laughs> the Gospel of Musical Theater is a production of Trinity Episcopal Cathedral in Portland, Oregon. Join Peter and Nathan every other Friday right here in your podcast feed and connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at Gospel of MT. Learn more and support us at trinity-episcopal.org slash podcasts. See you next time!